Welcome to Backlog Books. In this podcast, I will be recapping and discussing what I've been reading lately. My name is Kara. Thank you for joining me, and please be prepared for spoilers. Happy almost Halloween! Stuff's been happening, and I have a lot more stuff that's going to happen in the next month or two, so I may need to take another break from podcasting, but that's a problem for future Kara. She'll figure it out and let you know. Meanwhile, we're here, we're ready, let's get started. This time we are talking about The Telling by Ursula K. Le Guin. Here is the summary. Once a culturally rich world, the planet Aka has been utterly transformed by technology. Records of the past have been destroyed and citizens are strictly monitored. But an official observer from Earth named Suddy has learned of a group of outcasts who live in the wilderness. They still believe in the ancient ways and still practice its lost religion, the telling. Intrigued by their beliefs, Suddy joins them on a sacred pilgrimage into the mountains and into the dangerous terrain of her own heart, mind, and soul. The Telling was published in 2000. It won the Locus Award for Best Science Fiction Novel in 2001. Our author, Ursula K. Le Guin, was born in California in 1929. She earned a master's degree in French from Columbia University. She started writing in the 1950s and earned widespread recognition with her Earthsea books and other books. She won both a Nebula and a Hugo Award for her novel, The Left Hand of Darkness. In 2003, she was honored as a Grand Master of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. It really would take a full episode to properly talk about her influence on other writers and on science fiction, and just on like the landscape of science fiction which I don't have time for. I'm sorry, I'm here to talk about one specific book. Le Guin died in 2018 in Portland, Oregon. I have been reading Le Guin for a long time. I kind of can't believe this is my first time talking about a book of hers, though I know I have recommended her books in previous episodes. I'm pretty sure I've liked every book of hers that I have read, but it's really this book that I come back to over and over again. Now, I am a chronic rereader. I love to pick up books for the second and third and fourth time. So maybe that's not saying much, but I feel like whenever I think about Le Guin, I think about this book, which is kind of funny because she's definitely got better known books. It's just that I guess I read this one at the perfect time for me in the past, and every time I've picked it up since then, it's been just as good as I remembered. Now, the telling is part of the Hainish cycle, which is a loosely connected set of novels and short stories. I've read maybe three of the Hainish books, and none of the, like, origin books. Basically, I'm here to tell you that you don't need to read any of the other books to understand and enjoy this one. The basics of the setting, just to like 
set us up and get you an idea are that human life originated, instead of on Earth, it originated on a planet called Hain, which millions of years ago colonized a bunch of worlds and then lost contact with them. And then finally, like, they get back onto interstellar travel and start connecting with those planets again. And, like, people have evolved and changed over those millions of years on these unique worlds. And so all of these plants are reconnecting, they're guided by Hain, and they're setting up kind of a loose federation-y kind of thing known as the Ecumen. Part of their efforts to reconnect involve sending envoys, people trained to go establish contact with these long-lost colonies. To read a story about an envoy, read The Left Hand of Darkness. There are also observers... People sent once contact is established, and maybe before contact is established, I don't know exactly, but they're sent to observe the world, to see how the people live, and to document everything they can. And that's something that's very important to the Hainish, collecting history and collecting unique beliefs and ideas. And one of the lines in this book, which I'll, I'll just read it to you, to fall heir to a history of three million years was to find little in human behavior or invention that could be called unusual. Though the Hainish bore it lightly, it was a burden on their various descendants to know that they would have a hard time finding a new thing, even an imaginary new thing, under any sun. Which is such a weight to carry but it's also such a gift. The Hainish, because of their long history, they take a very patient view of life and history, which can be a little difficult for newcomers. But the Hainish are also very open and welcoming, willing to share what they know. Another big part of this setting is that interstellar travel takes a long time, which I feel like in our era of Star Trek and Star Wars is something that we tend to skip over a lot in science fiction. Not that Star Wars is especially science fiction-y, but you get, you get my drift, okay? In these books, it could take you anywhere from 30 to 100 years to travel from one planet to the next. Normally, communication would also take a long time, but Le Guin gives them a rare piece of tech an ansible, capable of communicating across light years with little to no lag, enabling envoys and observers to stay in contact with Hain. Whew, okay, now that we have all that set up, which I think is nicely explained in this book, let's talk about what happens. The telling follows Suddy, an observer trained at a Hainish university on Earth. She is on her first away mission to a planet called Akka. Sadi was very eager to get away from Earth and the painful recent past, away from the religious extremism which the planet has only recently begun to heal from. Earth was under, like, handmaid's tale level religious oppression until an envoy came and reminded them to be less terrible to each other. 
Sari saw the rise and fall of this movement in her lifetime, and it left indelible marks on her. She is eager to submerge herself in a new world, to lose herself in the study of a unique world full of poets and history. Instead, Sari finds that during her 60-year journey from Earth to Akka, a new government came to power— Akka is in the middle or nearing the end, I guess, of a similar upheaval that Earth was going through, but kind of from the opposite direction. Where Earth was controlled by religious extremists, Akka is ruled by scientific extremists. Akka has set up a corporation as their government. They refer to people as producer consumers. They allow no unique thought and ban all religious expression. They have been burning their books and trying to erase their history. Every aspect of life is now focused toward the same goal, a march to the stars. They're taking all this new information they've been given, and they're making it the most important thing in their whole world. So instead of Observing a world's unique history, Sadi is bombarded with propaganda. Do the same things as everyone else. Think the same things. And this is stuff that she has heard her whole life. But instead of the reasoning being because God says so, like it was on Earth, the reasoning is because science says so. I had forgotten a lot of this. It's been like four to five years since I last read it, but the part where they start referring to people as producer-consumers was just... I can see so much of that happening to us now, where, like, all that matters is what you consume and what you produce that benefits their march forward. Seti herself observes that her Earth is Akka's future. She says, We on Earth are living the future of a people who denied their past. Early in the book, an opportunity arises for Seti to get out of the capital, to see the provincial parts of Akka, to maybe find remnants of what the planet used to be, of their unique culture that their corporation has tried to bury. But she's not sure that she should go. The last thing Sadi wants is to seek out religious fanatics. She had enough of that on Earth. But she finds herself in the position of being the only Hainish observer who has the opportunity to learn more about the religion and practices that the Aachen Corporation is working so hard to suppress. She agrees to go. She will do her best to be an impartial observer, though, of course, her success varies. At the very least, getting out of the capital will get her away from the constant barrage of corporate propaganda. What Sadi finds, away from the noise of constant progress, is a widespread, underground, disguised tradition. There are people on Akka who tell the old stories and teach the old ways of living, like exercises and meditation and what food to eat during which season. 
And Suddy ends up calling this system the telling, which is where we get our title from, because so much of it centers around telling stories, legends and myths and fables and just day-to-day events. And this is Suddy's bread and butter. This is what she trained for, what she came to Akka for, to document and investigate. And the telling is such a joy for her because it's unlike the religious extremism she lived under on Earth. In fact, it's not like any religion she's ever learned about. As the book says, Suddy had long debates with her noter about whether any word could be said to mean sacred or holy. There were words she translated as power, mystery, not controlled by people, part of harmony. These terms were never reserved for a certain place or type of action. Rather, it appeared that in the old Akan way of thinking, any place, any act, if properly perceived, was actually mysterious and powerful, potentially sacred. And perception seemed to involve description, telling about the place or the act or the event or the person, talking about it, making it into a story. But these stories weren't gospel. They weren't truth with a capital T. They were essays at the truth, glances, glimpses of sacredness. One was not asked to believe, only to listen. And Suddy falls in love with the telling, basically, with studying it. She's a historian. She's desperately aware of what will happen if the corporation is able to wipe out the remnants of the telling. She's trying to define it, to make like an easy one-sentence summary But the telling defines that sort of categorization. Every time Sadi asks one of her teachers what the moral of a story is, they have no answer for her. The telling is not there to moralize, but to tell the world as it is. She asks one of her teachers, So anything that's in the books is equally important? Eliad considered. No, she said. Yes, it's all we have, you see? It's the way we have the world. Without the telling, we don't have anything at all. The moment goes by like the water of the river. We'd tumble and spin and be helpless if we tried to live in the moment. Our minds need to tell, need the telling to hold. The past has passed, and there's nothing in the future to catch hold of. The future is nothing yet. How could anybody live there? So what we have is the words that tell what happened and what happens. What was and is. Memory, Suddy said. History? Eliad nodded, dubious, not satisfied by these terms. She sat thinking for some time and finally said, We're not outside the world, you know? We are the world. We're its language, so we live and it lives. You see, if we don't say the words, what is there in our world? Though Suddy is welcomed into the telling by those who keep it alive, 
and they are eager to share with her. They're hopeful that her position within the ecumen can be used to influence the corporation into relaxing its stance to letting them practice again out in the open. There is still danger from the corporation, even out here in the boonies. There is someone set to watch Seti to monitor her movements. There are moments in the book where some of the people who have been teaching her disappear, their shops vandalized and taken over, and she never hears from them again. She meets people whose partners are in forced labor camps because they were found with a book or in a gay relationship. The monitor cannot interfere with Sadi. She's protected by her position as an observer, but he can certainly interfere with all the people around her. Near the end of the book, because if you've read The Left Hand of Darkness, you know Le Guin loves a good pilgrimage, Seti is given the chance to go to the last remaining library, the final collection of books kept safe from the corporation. It is a long, difficult journey through the mountains. They go in a small group and do their best to disguise their path and destination, but when they arrive, they find that the corporation monitor has followed them. Like I said earlier, Sadi has been trying to be an impartial observer. But the monitor is the embodiment of everything Sadi hated about the religious extremism on Earth. He's there to suppress individual thought and punish people for practicing the telling. He's the closest thing she has to the face of an enemy. But he is wounded, and the people at the library have to take him in and care for him, to decide what to do with him. And Sadi finally has a chance to talk with him, to learn who he is underneath the years of propaganda, learns his personal history, and has the chance to tell him what Earth is like because the Akans have an idealized vision of Earth. Their conversation change Sadi's perception of Akka and of the monitor himself. I won't tell you exactly how it ends, but it takes her meeting with the monitor on level ground for Sadi to understand Akka and understand how she can help because it's difficult to know as an individual what you can do to resist or change huge systemic problems. And Sadi is in a better position than most because she's one of, like, four observers sent by the Hainish to be on this planet. So she has a very important position, and it takes until the very end of the book for her to be able to understand how she can use her position to help. So I hope you get an idea, a sense of how much I love this book. First of all, I just really enjoy Le Guin's writing. Secondly, this story is about stories, and I love stories about stories. And this, it's about how we use stories to understand our world and to create it. It's about learning to recognize humanity in the other. It's about how diversity, diversity of thought, diversity of personality and belief creates a better world. 
Obviously, I recommend it. Maybe someday I'll even read the rest of the Hainish Cycle books instead of constantly rereading this one. <laughs> if you want more media like this, definitely check out The Left Hand of Darkness, also by Le Guin, and Grass by Sherry Tepper. That's a good weird one. Join me next time to hear about Blackwater Sister by Zen Cho. As always, you can contact me at backlogbookspod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, the best way to do that right now is to rate and review it, or just share it with a friend. You can find the podcast on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast or at backlogbooks.com. The music is by Joseph McDade. You can hear more of his work at josephmcdade.com. Thank you for spending this time with me. I hope to talk with you again soon.